Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This year marks the 25-year anniversary of a 51-day siege that ended in tragedy following a shootout between the US government and members of a sect called the Branch Davidians. The gunfire exchange lasted for well over an hour, killing four US agents and six Branch Davidians. Yet this violence was just the beginning of an ordeal that would culminate in an inferno later to become known as the Waco Massacre. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. April 19th marks 25 years since the tragic end of a siege in Waco, Texas, that took the lives of 76 people altogether, 21 of them children. Today, let's talk about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, including manipulative behaviours, physical assault, sexual abuse of minors, murder and suicide. This episode is particularly distressing on a number of levels, so please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. David Koresh was born Vernon Wayne Howell on August 17, 1959, to single mother Bonnie Clark, who was only 14 years old at the time. Vernon took his father Bobby's surname, although his parents' relationship didn't work out, and Bonnie married another man shortly afterwards. This relationship didn't work out either, and according to Dick J. Revis's book The Ashes of Waco, An Investigation, Bonnie claimed that Vernon's stepfather beat the young child, and she divorced him when Vernon was two years old. Vernon then went to live with his grandparents until he was five, when he rejoined Bonnie in Dallas, Texas, after she wed her second husband, Roy Haldeman. According to a biography on PBS, Vernon was a bad student, dyslexic, and a high school dropout. He later told FBI negotiators that he had had a lonely childhood and was teased by other children, 
and that he was also beaten by his mother and Roy. A CNN profile contends that he liked to exaggerate his academic difficulties in order to create a better story about his humble beginnings. Certainly a few sources I've read list Vernon as a grade 9 dropout, when in fact he apparently made it to grade 11. When Vernon was six, his younger half-brother Roger Haldeman was born to Bonnie and Roy. Roger would go on to be in and out of trouble with the law, doing time in jail for burglary and drug-related crimes. Vernon found some solace from the bullying in the Bible, and memorised long sections of it by the age of twelve. He was known to lecture friends and family in biblical verse, and his grandmother would take him to her Seventh-day Adventist church regularly. It's sometime around here that Vernon claimed God first spoke to him directly. Vernon's faith didn't hold him back from having sexual relations with a girl he met when he was 18 and she was 16. He removed himself from the ongoing temptation away from Dallas to a friend's house, and again according to Dick J. Reeves's book, when she called after two months without contact to tell him that she was pregnant, Vernon told her that it couldn't be possible as he was infertile. By the time he'd decided to admit the truth and step up to his responsibilities, as apparently instructed by God, she'd already had an abortion. But they managed to pick up the relationship again, until he got her pregnant once more, and admitted to her father that he'd been responsible for the first instance as well, and was chased out of the house. At the age of 19, Vernon was sleeping in the back of his pickup truck on the outskirts of Dallas. Vernon did have musical talents, and at the age of 20 he decided the way forward was to move to Hollywood to pursue a career as a rock star. You may be sensing some shades of Charlie Manson here. This move didn't quite work out as Vernon had hoped, and in 1981 the now 22-year-old headed to Waco, Texas, where he joined the Branch Davidians initially to help out with odd jobs as a handyman. The Branch Davidians were a breakaway branch of the Davidians, also known as the Shepherd's Rod or the Rod, who were themselves a breakaway branch of the Seventh-day Adventists, the denomination that Vernon had been attending with his grandmother in Dallas. The Seventh-day Adventists gained their name from their observance of Saturday as their seventh day and day of Sabbath, and from their belief in the second coming or advent of Christ. Victor Hutef felt that the Seventh-day Adventist church was becoming lax and was in need of reformation. He was disfellowshipped in 1930 for his views, and in 1935 he and his followers purchased land and made their headquarters the Mount Carmel Center in Waco, Texas. The Davidian Seventh-day Adventist reached their peak in the 1950s under his leadership and the period following his death in 1955. His wife Florence had laid claim to the leadership after Victor passed away, 
and she sought to establish her prophetic credentials by announcing that the second coming was due to happen on the 22nd of April 1959, according to her analysis of the Book of Revelation. Up to 1,000 followers sold up all of their belongings and moved to Waco for the big day, and when nothing came of it, the Branch Davidians' membership splintered. Florence relinquished the leadership a few years later. Lois and Benjamin Roden had accepted the teachings of Victor Hutef in the mid-40s, and Benjamin had been one of the opposing claimants to Florence's leadership in 1955. When she left, in the power vacuum, Benjamin's claim became successful. Another claim he made was that, at least symbolically, his lineage could be traced to links with the biblical King David, though many Branch Davidians took this statement literally. Benjamin Roden passed away in October of 1978, and Lois Roden made her claim for the leadership. This was, once again, controversial, as Benjamin and Lois's son George believed it to be his birthright. During this leadership struggle, more members deserted the sect. In 1983, Vernon was disfellowshipped from the Seventh-day Adventist church in Tyler, Texas that he had also been attending, for various offences, including on one occasion taking over the pulpit to preach his own views. Around this time, he was rumoured to have begun a sexual relationship with Lois, who was then in her late 60s, and eventually Lois began to view him as her potential successor. Other Branch Davidians took longer to come around to the idea, ex-member Kathy Jones telling CNN that her original impression of him was as a bit of a bum. Vernon claimed that God had told him he was to father a child with Lois, who would be the chosen one. Her age would be no problem. Lois's son George had many issues with this prediction. The birth of the chosen one never eventuated, however, and Vernon revealed that the Lord had now told him he was to marry Rachel Jones, according to Colin Wilson's 2011 book, The Devil's Party, A History of Charlatan Messiahs. The Jones family were highly respected Branch Davidian members, and Vernon married Rachel with her father Perry's blessing in 1984. He was 24, and she was 14 at the time, legal under Texas law at the time with parental consent. There was still plenty of tension between Vernon and George Roden, and in 1985, George's leadership claim finally worked out in his favour. He ejected Vernon from the Mount Carmel compound at gunpoint, though Vernon took a number of followers with him. Australian Branch Davidian Clive Doyle described George as a bully who would beat people into submission if they didn't cower before him. Vernon's group set up a makeshift camp in Palestine, Texas. A Newsweek article from March of 1993 says that Vernon remained monogamous with his young wife for two years, before announcing that God had told him to create a new House of David, with many wives like that of King David. If you listened to our last episode about the Order of St. Charbel, you'll be reminded of William Cam's Royal House of David here. Lois died in November of 1986, and back at Mount Carmel, George remained preoccupied with Vernon Howell's claims to being the true prophet. He was struggling with the group's finances as well, which wasn't helping him in maintaining a sense of authority. 
George decided to challenge the exiled Vernon in a fairly daring way. He unearthed the body of a deceased Branch Davidian, Anna Hughes, and sent a message to Vernon that whichever of the two of them could resurrect her would prove themselves the true prophet. Vernon instead decided to use the opportunity to inform the authorities that George Roden was interfering with a corpse. He was told that they needed proof, like a photograph. From there, Vernon and six of his followers armed themselves and snuck into the Mount Carmel compound dressed in camouflage. According to prosecutors in the court case to follow, they had on them five semi-automatic assault rifles, two twenty-two caliber rifles, and two shotguns with nearly 400 rounds of ammunition. Authorities later seized further weapons and ammunition as well. Later that day, the 3rd of November, 1987, a shootout ensued between the eight and George Roden, who himself was armed with an Uzi. Roden was shot in the chest and hand, and the seven men would be charged with attempted murder. George did not appear well in court. Some jurors said that he frightened them. Vernon was more eloquent, in spite of his lack of education. He was slim, with wavy brown hair that he wore long and wire-rimmed aviator-shaped glasses. And he was clearly adored by his followers, including many modestly dressed young women who showed up to court for him each day. Vernon's accomplices were found not guilty, and after a two-week trial, the jury couldn't come to a decision on Vernon himself, remaining hung. Vernon maintained that he'd only attended the compound to try to get a photograph, and that he'd been aiming his shots at a tree. The state decided to drop the case following the deadlock, and all of the weapons were returned to the group. While the prosecutor didn't comment on why they didn't go for a retrial, he did tell the New York Times, quote, It was a black man trying to prosecute seven white men in a southern town called Waco. George Roden would end up living out his days in a state mental hospital after killing a man in Odessa that he claimed was sent by Vernon to kill him. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Following the court case, Vernon took control of the Mount Carmel Branch Davidians. He immediately set members to work improving the compound's facilities, which definitely had a positive effect on their living standards, but also kept them pretty busy from the early hours of every morning. He also managed to lift the group out of their financial woes by securing large donations from some well-off branch Davidians to sort out their back taxes. He set up some businesses on the compound to assist with keeping the group as self-sufficient as possible. These included an auto repair shop and a weapons business that primarily purchased guns and related paraphernalia via mail order and resold them at gun shows. Vernon proclaimed himself to be the Lamb of God, with the ability to unlock the seven seals. Many believe the Lamb of God to be Christ, and Vernon is quoted as having said, If the Bible is true, then I am Christ. But so what? Look at 2,000 years ago. What's so great about being Christ, a man nailed to the cross, a man of sorrow acquainted with grief? You know, being Christ ain't nothing. You know what I mean? 
Grace Adams, a New Zealander who had joined the group at the age of 29 with her 21-year-old sister Rebecca, told Australia's A Current Affair, quote, We believed that this man had a truth that we needed to know. We wanted to know that God had a message for us, and this man said that he had that message. Ex-member Janine Buns told the Waco Tribune Herald, quote, I guess everyone is looking for utopia, Shangri-La. You don't want any problems. It wasn't all bad times, you know. The people in this are great. They'll give you the shirt off their back. They're nice, like everyone else in the world, except they believe this. Clive Doyle, who had come from Australia to join the Branch Davidians in the Roden era and had found some of Lois Roden's messages challenging, wrote in his book A Journey to Waco, Autobiography of a Branch Davidian, that Vernon, quote, made scripture come alive. He showed that all of the prophets in the Bible were writing more for our day than for their own time. Vernon kept sect members busy in Bible study sessions that could last for 15 plus hours at a time, his detailed knowledge of the text allowing him to recall passages that supported all of his various assertions. He was also known to have a temper that he could turn on anyone. Joanne Vega, who came from Hawaii as a toddler with her parents in 1987 to join the Branch Davidians, told CBS's 48 Hours program last year about an incident where she listened to Vernon beat the then four-year-old Cyrus, the son he had with his legal wife Rachel, for what seemed like hours. She also recalled Vernon being verbally abusive to her father. Other ex-members claimed that Vernon was particularly hard on Cyrus who they say was once starved of food until he was too weak to feed himself, around the age of three. Australian ex-member Bruce Gent recalled a time when Cyrus was left alone and crying on a bus at the age of one, and Vernon would break from Bible study periodically to hit the child until his cries turned to whimpers, each beating lasting several minutes at a time. More than one ex-member told the media of their regret at having beaten their own children under direction from Vernon too. Former Branch Davidian Mark Brilt, who described himself to 48 hours as once being closer to Vernon than a brother, told the Waco Tribune Herald that the leader created arbitrary rules about all kinds of things. For instance, at one time, the only fruit members were allowed to eat were bananas. At another time, they weren't allowed to eat oranges and grapes together, but oranges and raisins were okay. However, Vernon managed to excuse himself from many of the rules. As Mark told the Tribune, quote, First he was the only one allowed to eat meat. Then he was the only one allowed to drink coke. Then he was the only one allowed to drink beer. The thing I noticed about Vernon is that whatever he was tempted with, eventually God would get around to saying it was all right for him to do. In 1990, Vernon Howell legally changed his name to David Koresh. On the paperwork for the name change, filed on May 15th, he listed the reason as for publicity and business purposes. Branch Davidians still referred to him as Vernon, so I'll do the same in this episode, but in the media he is best known as David Koresh. 
Koresh is the Hebrew version of the name Cyrus, as we covered in episode 6 about Cyrus Teed and Koreshanity, Cyrus being another sect leader who changed his name to Koresh. Cyrus the Great is referenced in the Bible, and is the Persian king who decreed that the exiled Babylonian Jews could return to the promised land of Jerusalem. David G. Bromley and Edward D. Silver wrote a chapter entitled The Davidian Tradition from Patronal Clan to Prophetic Movement, included in Stuart A. Wright's collection Armageddon in Waco, Critical Perspectives on the Branch Davidian Conflict. They suggest that Vernon changed his name to up the ante on his Adventist predecessors in establishing his prophetic credentials. Quote, in biblical language, Koresh is a as opposed to the Messiah, one appointed to carry out a special mission for God. His first name, David, asserts a lineage directly to the biblical King David, from whom the new Messiah will be descended. By taking this name, David Koresh was thereby professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David, a messianic figure carrying out a divinely commissioned errand. End quote. Bromley and Silver also write that Vernon moved the Branch Davidians into being a prophetic movement organization in a number of ways, including the following. Quote, First Koresh began actively building a prophetic leadership base through evangelization of new converts and elevation of his charisma claims. Second, Koresh guided the Branch Davidian community toward a more transformative orientation, creating a compelling sense of living in the end time. Third, Life at Mount Carmel became distinctly more communal as family autonomy declined and the individual with personal loyalty to Koresh became the basic building block unit of the community. Finally, tension within the larger society mounted primarily as a result of Koresh's new light doctrine and its implementation in the House of David. The New Light Doctrine involved Vernon's assertion that he, as a messiah, was the perfect mate for all female branch Davidians, and that didn't just include young unwed women anymore. Male branch Davidians' marriages would be annulled, and they would become celibate. Their true mate would be created from their rib in the afterlife. Vernon needed all women to create a new lineage to rule the world. Women and men would now sleep in separate quarters. This addition to his House of David caused some members to leave, including Mark Briolt and his wife. And with numbers a concern, through the late 80s Vernon was recruiting members both interstate and internationally, including on trips to Australia, Canada and England. He was targeting current and former Seventh-day Adventists, and those who were attracted to him were seemingly convinced by his prophecies and highly detailed biblical knowledge. With all of the leadership battles and splintering that the Branch Davidians had been through before Vernon's ascension, the few dozen people that he recruited to the group swelled the numbers to around 100, and meant that the Branch Davidian following of the period included a good proportion of people who had a strong personal devotion to him as their leader. Through this group, he was able to push forward with his expanded House of David. It's worth understanding that the Branch Davidians believed that part of their religious devotion was to have their preconceptions challenged. If something was difficult for them to accept, they were to turn to the Bible and see if it could be justified against the text. Malcolm Gladwell wrote for The New Yorker in 2014 
that Psalm 45 covered this, with its talk of a king who would create a dynasty with many princesses to eventually rule the world. When parents of younger girls were sometimes upset in finding out about the sexual relationships their daughters were having with Vernon, he would manage to convince them that the creation of God's new race was an honour that they should be happy about. According to a number of reports and former members, girls he pursued and spiritually wedded were as young as 12, including his legal wife's younger sister. Later testimony by a teenage ex-Branch Davidian described her sexual molestation by Vernon in a hotel room at the age of 10. A number of children were born to young Branch Davidian women over this period, who did not have a father listed on their birth certificates, and former members have claimed that this was under the direction of Vernon, who was the father in each instance and trying to hide that fact from outsiders. Ex-member David Bunns told ABC News in January that today he considers Vernon a pedophile and wishes he would have done something more to stop him at the time. Quote, I'll call it a cult, that's what it was. It's people doing things they wouldn't normally do, like giving up their wives and letting their children have sex with adults, which is crazy, but that's what you do when you're in a cult. Members were often instructed to enter sham marriages to keep those who'd moved to Waco from overseas able to live in America. Robin Bunns, who was one of Vernon's first spiritual wives, was married off to a man named Cliff Sellers in 1989. She told the Waco Tribune Herald that she didn't want to do it and that the marriage made her sick to her stomach, but she felt that she had to do what Vernon told her to. When she left the group in 1990, she informed the authorities about the sham marriages, but didn't feel that anything was being done about it. Both Robin Bunz and another of Vernon's earliest spiritual wives, Australian Nicole Gent, also had the experience of sharing a sexual partner with their own mothers. Vernon requested permission from the women and their husbands to initiate intimate relations with Janine Bunz and Lisa Gent and all agreed, after much soul-searching and discussion, believing that it was the right thing to do for a higher purpose, even if it troubled them. Nicole Gent's parents, Bruce and Lisa, eventually left the Branch Davidians and returned to Australia, but Nicole and her twin brother Peter stayed, and Nicole went on to have two children with Vernon. In February of this year, investigative journalist and Waco expert Lee Hancock wrote a piece for the Dallas News to mark the 25th anniversary of the events that led to the siege. She reviewed federal records that showed that in 1989, quote, former followers began warning authorities that the group was involved in criminal acts ranging from child abuse to immigration fraud to involuntary servitude. The US Embassy in Australia found the reports so worrisome that its consular officials sent cables to the Immigration and Naturalisation Service, the State Department and the FBI. Grace Adams, the former member from New Zealand, told 48 Hours that with Vernon claiming various females for sex under instruction from God, which she confirmed included girls as young as 12, something in her flipped just waiting for it to be her, 
but instead of leaving, she wanted to get the whole thing over with, and knocked on Vernon's door at 3am one morning. Apparently Vernon started yelling at her in a rage, waking everyone up and shouting that only God was to make these choices. Grace says that he then locked her up for almost four months in a 10 by 8 foot room, solitary confinement under guard where she says she was treated like a prisoner and that her mind got messed up. She says Vernon physically assaulted her with slaps to the face, and when she was finally allowed to leave, she spent time in a psychiatric ward in California before returning home to New Zealand. Her younger sister remained at Mount Carmel. Then in the following year, 1990, according to Lee Hancock's Dallas News article, Californian police records show that Vernon was almost charged with kidnapping. He'd been staying at the Californian Branch Davidian base at the time, and had sent a toddler he'd fathered with Robin Buns back to Waco after she told him she wanted to leave the sect. He returned the child to her and fled California for Texas in the wake of the police attention. Robin did leave and became highly critical of the group, along with her brother Mark. She told the Washington Post that Vernon's punishments of sect children drew blood and, quote, all the children had leather bottoms. She would later testify in court that he repeatedly hit her eight-month-old baby with a wooden spoon for half an hour in 1988. She also told the Waco Tribune Herald about life in the Branch Davidians prior to Vernon. Quote, Before it was harmless. You sent tithes, had services. When Vernon came along, he totally changed it. He said you had to give him all your money. You had to live on the property. You had to give up everything else. End quote. Unnamed ex-members also told the Waco Tribune Herald that they'd lost their life savings to Vernon and even gone into debt by charging thousands of dollars on credit cards at his request. An elderly couple were reported to have given him a quarter to half a million dollars in funds. Michelle Tom, an ex-member from Australia and the stepsister of Nicole Gent, said that in her days in the sect she expected tithe from members was 30%, but it later became 100%, for which they'd receive board, food, and maybe a small allowance in return. By the early 90s, Vernon and the Branch Davidians were ramping up their preparations for the apocalypse. They were stocking up on weapons and members were on rotating guard duty. They even had an old school bus buried and set up as an underground bunker at Mount Carmel. Children who lived in the compound later spoke about being taught to recognise certain types of aircraft, how to use a gun to make sure you kill yourself effectively, and that the end of the world was coming. A local rancher and army veteran, Robert Savenka, told 48 Hours that at one point he saw Branch Davidians in a field shooting at silhouette shapes rather than bullseye targets, and that he also heard a machine gun, which he reported to police. By 1992, the group had come to the attention of the media. In January of that year, Vernon was interviewed by Martin King of Australia's Channel 9 TV show A Current Affair, and when asked about the Branch Davidians' increased interest in weapons, told him that it was nobody's business. Quote, Guns are the rights of Americans to have, and, quote, This is America, this is not Australia, this is not Europe, 
Did King David have swords? Did Jesus tell the apostles to carry a sword with you? Yes. End quote. On camera, Vernon also denied sleeping with anyone other than his legal wife. Around this time, there was a custody battle initiated by the father of a girl residing with her mother at Mount Carmel. The father was never a Branch Davidian and had been in contact with ex-member Mark Brilt, now in Australia, who warned him that the Star of David his daughter wore around her neck indicated that she was being groomed for the House of David. He eventually removed the 11-year-old from the compound and from contact with Vernon under a new joint custody arrangement with her mother. Also in January, Texas Child Protective Services had started investigating allegations of child abuse. They couldn't find enough information to substantiate the allegations, though the lead investigator later told Congress that she'd objected to the case being closed. Vernon was well aware of the rising scrutiny from the outside world and was preaching that the end times were getting ever closer. Larry Gilbreth, a UPS driver, told 48 Hours that he found out he'd been delivering an arsenal to the Branch Davidians over numerous trips, when in February of 1992, six to eight hand grenades fell out of a box in his truck. He told his wife, who told the authorities. Quoting Larry, I delivered ammunition for 223s, AK-47s and AR-15s and big magazines to go on them, even a grenade launcher. According to Lee Hancock, records show that almost 60 assault rifles plus grenade shells, magazines and over 100,000 bullets were brought by the group between March and April that year, along with other equipment such as for night vision. In April of 1992, Australian ex-member Bruce Gent, who still had two children at Mount Carmel and had been involved with a current affairs coverage of the Branch Davidians earlier in the year, said that he felt no one with authority was going to take any notice of the situation until, quote, there's a pile of bodies, it'll be another Jonestown. The Waco Tribune Herald had been investigating the group, and they printed the first of their seven-part series, The Sinful Messiah, on February 27, 1993. It put the inaction of the US authorities in the spotlight. I'll read you the full introduction. Quote, an eight-month Tribune Herald investigation that involved numerous interviews with Brilt and more than 20 other former cult members and a review of court records and statements to law enforcement officials revealed complaints that Howell abused children physically and psychologically, boasted of having sex with underage girls in the cult, claimed the divine right to take every man's wife, and has at least 15 so-called wives. Authorities have not acted on complaints, for various reasons. Some officials said former cult members making allegations have not appeared in person to swear out a complaint against Howell, though they have mailed sworn statements to local, state and federal authorities. Other officials said they needed evidence, not allegations. Former cult members in Australia pooled their money and hired a private detective, Geoffrey Hossack, to lodge their complaints with authorities. Hossack said he believes authorities will act only if someone is killed. End quote. The ATF had actually been conducting an undercover operation for some months, after being tipped off by the Sheriff's Department, who had been contacted by the UPS driver, and Agent Robert Rodriguez had been working from the inside under the name Robert Gonzalez, 
reporting his observations back to the Bureau. Interestingly, Vernon seems to have been on to Robert, saying that he suspected the man was with the authorities, but that he allowed him to stick around with the hope of converting him. Robert's reports to his team had conveyed the amount of control that Vernon wielded over his followers, and he portrayed the group as religious zealots with access to an increasing stockpile of weapons. He would later testify at congressional hearings to observing Vernon teach his followers that, quote, their destiny was to die and later come back as the chosen few. The ATF had also set up a surveillance operation, installing agents in a property across the road from the Mount Carmel compound, but Vernon and the Branch Davidians had been suspicious of them from the outset, as they claimed to be students but had flashy new cars. The agents knew they were being watched by sect members, who came by and tried to be friendly, welcoming them to the area and becoming more sceptical when the so-called students wouldn't invite them in out of the cold. Although later investigations found that Vernon had left the compound a couple of times during the weeks he was under surveillance, the ATF claimed that they believed he'd stopped coming out of the property and hadn't witnessed these occurrences. Due to Robert Rodriguez's reports, the ATF had enough probable cause to issue arrest and search warrants on the basis that some of the equipment being purchased could be used to convert assault rifles into illegal weapons. But also due to their intel, they knew that they would have to be careful about how and when they attended the property to execute them. The plan was to approach the property by stealth, with agents under canopies in the back of cattle trailers, that would enter the compound at a time when the Branch Davidian men were working on construction outside, and therefore away from the weaponry. There would also be three helicopters flown by the National Guard to the site, to distract the Davidians at the time of the raid. This plan was called Operation Trojan Horse, and the radio signal for its commencement was Showtime. With the Branch Davidians well-versed in preparing for a siege, in which Vernon Howell told them that they would have to defend him with their lives, Operation Trojan Horse played right into their prophet's apocalyptic visions. The Waco Tribune-Herald was asked by the ATF to delay the publishing of their investigative series a couple of days, but the publication wouldn't commit to this. It instead sent nine staff to Mount Carmel on the day of the raid to cover the unfolding events. Then an ambulance dispatcher, whose department had been asked to be on standby on the day, tipped off her partner, who worked for local television station KWTX. As ATF agents approached the Mount Carmel property, a camera person from KWTX asked a local mail delivery person for directions to the compound. That mail delivery person was David Jones, Vernon's brother-in-law, who reported the news straight back to his father Perry, who immediately took it to Vernon. Vernon shifted quickly into a state of high alert, as observed by undercover ATF agent Robert Rodriguez. He told Robert that he knew what was going on and allowed him to leave the compound. Robert warned his superiors that Vernon was on to them. Many believe that this is where the first big mistake was made by the ATF, when they didn't call off the operation upon finding out that they'd lost the element of surprise. 
Robert Rodriguez broke down in tears when his warnings weren't heeded. ATF agent Blake Patella told Lee Hancock for the Dallas News, quote, They had what we call go fever. Go fever is, we've got all this ready, let's get it done. Go fever gets people killed. He continued, quote, I never even thought that not going was an option. I guess in my mind, we're the police. We have a lawful warrant. I had never found a group that would stand up against 80 to 100 police officers and say, we're not coming out. I just couldn't imagine it. I don't think anybody expected that, even after we had been compromised. End quote. The FBI later called their plan incredibly stupid. But the FBI were to face plenty of criticism themselves in the weeks to come. The ATF claimed that the agent they sent in to serve their warrant couldn't even get to the door before shots were fired. The Branch Davidians would claim that they never fired the first shot. ATF agent John Williams would testify that shots came from inside as they approached and that, quote, they were shooting through the windows, the doors, everywhere. Journalists from both the Waco Tribune Herald and KWTX would support the ATF's version of events following the incident, stating that the first shots came from within the building. Either way, the agents returned fire, and the shootout resulted in the Branch Davidians killing four ATF agents, and the ATF killing two sect members, all in front of the watching media and television cameras. Conway LeBleu, Todd McKeon, Robert Williams and Stephen Willis were the four ATF agents who lost their lives that day, while 28 more agents were injured, some very seriously. Three of the four who died had been part of the operation that pushed on with their raid objective, trying to get to the upstairs room where they believed the sect's weapons were stored, in spite of the heavy gunfire. Agent Kenny King was shot six times in the chest, legs and arms, and rolled off the roof, He lay in agony for two hours, radioing for help periodically before he could be rescued. A total of six Branch Davidians would end up dead at this stage of the confrontation with the ATF, and later investigations showed that two of them were wounded by ATF bullets, but actually killed by sect members inside the compound. Vernon's father-in-law, Perry Jones, was killed by a close-range gunshot wound to the mouth, and while sect members would later claim they put him out of his misery after he was wounded in the stomach, the autopsy only found a single bullet wound, the one that killed him. The final Brand Davidian who lost his life that day was a man named Michael Schroeder, who was actually trying to get into the Mount Carmel Centre from outside with two other sect members. He fired at ATF agents 18 times from a ravine, and although there were claims that he was shot in the back of the head as he was running away, an autopsy found that his six bullet wounds were consistent with gunfire exchange over a distance. Of the two other sect members with him, one was captured and one ran away. Branch Davidian and Harvard-educated lawyer Wayne Martin phoned 911 at the commencement of the shootout. Dispatcher Jani Sakura took the call and handed it over to Lieutenant Larry Lynch. 
here's some audio from the call. Lynch, may I help you? Yeah, there's 75 men around our building and they're shooting at us in Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here and to call it off. Right, right. From this initial call, it took the dispatchers over 40 minutes to reach anyone at the ATF. Children released from the compound later would tell the authorities that Wayne Martin had been wearing two grenades on a chain around his neck, mentioning that the other men only got one. ATF agent James Kavanaugh was on the phone to Vernon's right-hand man Stephen Schneider by this time, from the surveillance house, although he couldn't source a contact number for the compound until 30 minutes into the shootout. At the July 1995 congressional hearings, he claimed Stephen screamed at him that they had no right to be there and to get off the property. James Kavanaugh then got Vernon on the phone and eventually managed to negotiate a ceasefire. The exchange had lasted for an hour and a half, and Vernon himself was amongst four Branch Davidians with non-fatal injuries. He had suffered gunshot wounds to the abdomen and wrist. By the time of the ceasefire, later investigations by the Texas Rangers would find that the incident resulted in 1,100 rounds fired by the ATF and over 10,000 rounds fired by Branch Davidians. On February 28th, Vernon initially bargained with Agent James Kavanagh for his messages to be played on the radio in return for releasing some of the children from inside the compound. He would release two children every time his recording was played on Dallas radio station KRLD. Then from March 1st, the FBI took over management of the situation. It was to become a 51-day siege that played out live on television sets worldwide. The FBI upped the stakes to offer Vernon a national television platform upon a promise from him that he'd come out if a one-hour recording of his sermon was played. The tape was televised the following morning. My name is Dave Koresh. I'm speaking to you from Mount Carmel Center. The first thing that I would like to introduce... But Vernon then informed them via Stephen Schneider that God had told him to wait. The FBI was set on increasing tactical pressure and had tanks they'd brought to the scene moved forward. By March 5th, 21 children had been released from the compound. Of the 27 children remaining inside, Vernon said that these were his biological children and they would not be coming out. The agents sent in various provisions to Vernon, including milk for the children, and in these provisions they'd hidden listening devices. They also sent in a video camera, taking advantage of Vernon's need to share his message in order to gain more understanding of the situation inside the centre. You can watch a lot of the footage that Vernon shot of himself and the children online. This is my family. It may not be like your family. You know, it may not be like your family. This one here, you know, he's my family too, right, Joseph? Yeah. Tell him, tell him, you know, look in that camera and tell him what you think about it. Who's treated you good? David. Janet Reno was sworn in as Attorney General on March 12th, and she endorsed the FBI's plan to wait things out. In doing so, however, 
They also cut off all electricity, blasted loud music and shone bright lights into the compound. On March 7th, behavioural analyst Pete Smerick of the FBI wrote to his superiors, as reported in the Los Angeles Times when covering the later congressional hearings, quote, If the compound is attacked, in all probability David Koresh and his followers will fight back to the death. If we physically attack the compound and children are killed, even by Davidians, we, in the FBI, will be placed in a difficult position. The news media, Congress and the American people will ask questions. Why couldn't you just wait them out? What threat did they pose to anyone except themselves? Why did you cause children to be killed? End quote. On March 11th, the FBI first floated the idea of using tear gas to force the Branch Davidians out of the compound, but this plan was rejected. After negotiators had issues making contact on March 13th, the following day the Branch Davidians lowered a banner out of a window that read, FBI broke negotiation, we want press. Around this time, Newsweek managed to speak to George Roden at the state mental hospital he continued to reside in. He told them he'd been trying to warn people about Vernon for years. FBI negotiator Byron Sage and Sheriff Jack Harwell managed to meet with Stephen Schneider and Wayne Martin in person outside the compound on March 15th. Byron Sage was also negotiating with Vernon over the phone, and says that during his discussions, he formed the impression that Vernon was not deluded nor truly believed that he was Jesus Christ, but that he was a con man. He recounted to Frontline that during his negotiations, quote, I tell him that I'm absolutely confident in my salvation and he's not in a position to challenge it. Now, if anyone was in a position to try to challenge my faith as a Christian, it would be someone that perceives himself to be Christ. He does not assume that posture. From that point forward, it is absolutely patently clear in my mind what we're dealing with. This guy is not delusional. He's not a messianic complex. He does not buy off on his own con. End quote. Religious scholar Nancy Ammerman, who for a later inquiry interviewed a number of the FBI negotiators, explained their perspective as, quote, For these men, David Koresh was a sociopath, and his followers were hostages. Religion was a convenient cover for Koresh's desire to control his followers and monopolize all the rewards for himself. The in-person meeting appeared to have gone well, at least with Stephen Schneider. Over the FBI's listening devices, they heard Stephen say about Byron Sage, quote, I liked his personality. I believe he was 100% sincere. I saw concern in his face and eyes. It's pure speculation, but in thinking about this exchange, it's interesting to wonder whether for those under Vernon, it may have been possible to understand that what was happening was not the biblical Armageddon they'd been preparing for. Certainly by March 17th, it seems that Stephen Schneider had changed his tune. The FBI would assume this was under the direction of Vernon. Stephen refused to come out for another face-to-face and told negotiators that 20 to 30 branch Davidians would have surrendered if the power hadn't been cut. The FBI responded by telling Stephen that they were running out of patience. The FBI later explained to Time that they were switching up their techniques, trying different things to see what might work. The lights and music were to wear the sect members down, the thought being that if they remained in comfort, they had little motivation to leave. 
the conciliatory and respectful approach had stopped working weeks ago. Vox points out that there was also a culture clash within the FBI itself at this time, where negotiators were trying to cool things down, while tactical teams were trying to keep the pressure up. Quote, The negotiators felt that every time they got somewhere with Koresh or other Davidians, the tactical team undermined them by making another aggressive move. The feelings went the other way too. At one stage, there was even graffiti on the team's portable toilets observed by negotiator Byron Sage that said, Sage is a Davidian, presumably written by someone on the tactical team. On March 21st, seven adult Branch Davidians came out and surrendered to the authorities. Members had been trickling out in ones and twos up until this point, and seven was the largest exodus so far. There was some speculation that those exiting were also those least useful to Vernon in another confrontation. Whilst negotiators warned against responding to this positive development with negative actions, the FBI's tactical team stuck with increasing pressure and again moved their tanks forward crushing Branch Davidian cars. That night, they blared more loud music and noise into the compound, including Christmas carols and These Boots Are Made For Walking, as well as dentist drills and dying rabbit screams. Later at congressional hearings in 1995, attorney Dick DeGuerin, one of two outside attorneys allowed into the compound during the siege, condemned the FBI's tactics and testified that instead of encouraging sect members to come out, it bonded them together. Quote, People from diverse backgrounds, no matter how different they are, will bond together with that kind of experience. It was wrong, and the second reason it was wrong was because it played right into this apocalyptic vision that they had. The end was coming with chariots of fire, with giant beasts breathing fire. End quote. On March 23rd, the last of 14 adult Branch Davidians who would leave during the siege had exited the compound and surrendered. The New Yorker and conflict studies academic Jane Doherty in her book Lessons from Waco suggests that approaching the situation as if it were a regular hostage negotiation was a doomed strategy from the start, as the standard negotiating practice used on bank robbers and hostage takers was never going to be effective on true believers. Malcolm Gladwell for The New Yorker writes, quote, Because the FBI could not take the faith of the Branch Davidians seriously, it had no meaningful way to communicate with them. On March 24th, and two days later on March 26th, two men actually managed to sneak past the authorities and into the compound. Neither of them were Branch Davidians. Louis Alaniz, described as a 24-year-old religious fanatic, and Jesse Amen, described as a 40-year-old drifter, both confounded the FBI by gaining access. By March 27th, a new banner hung out of the compound window which read, Rodney King, we understand. Rodney King had been the victim of LAPD brutality two years earlier. Dick Tagurin was the high-profile attorney who had been hired by Vernon's mother Bonnie by this point, and was first allowed to enter the compound on March 29th, 
after Vernon broke four days of radio silence with negotiators. Author and human rights activist Leonard Zuskind wrote for Searchlight magazine that by the end of March, quote, a bevy of white supremacists, calling themselves constitutionalists, landed among the media. These included Aryan Nations leader Louis Beam, Richard Ort of the Constitutional Foundation Association, Floridian Gary Hunt, who published the Patriot newspaper Outpost of Freedom, and Kirk Lyons, the Aryan Nations attorney, who held a press conference to say that he was representing Bonnie, Vernon's mother. Leonard Zuskind told PBS's Oklahoma City last year, quote, The Branch Davidians were not white supremacists, but now a broader section of the far right sees itself in Waco and says, We're being suppressed for our beliefs and our guns, end quote. One individual with sympathies for this group was 24-year-old army vet Timothy McVeigh, who came to Waco and sold pro-gun, anti-government bumper stickers with slogans like, Ban guns, make the street safe for a government takeover. On April 4th, Dick DeGuerin and attorney Jack Zimmerman, who was representing Stephen Schneider, told negotiators that the Branch Davidians wished to observe Passover and would then come out after a week. Jesse Amon, the non-Branch Davidian who had snuck in on March 26th, came out but didn't provide any useful information. The weekend of April 10th, Vernon sent out two letters to the FBI that he said were messages from God. Viewed by time and observed to be in the neat handwriting of one of his many wives, they included the words, quote, I am your God and you will bow under my feet. Do you think you have the power to stop my will? The FBI ran these past psychologists, who concluded that, quote, It is hard to believe that Koresh will abdicate his godhood for a limited notoriety and time behind bars. Eight days later, with still no sign of surrender, on April 12th, the FBI sent another request to use tear gas to Janet Reno. She asked for more information and requested further waiting. By April 14th, Vernon had already broken multiple promises to end the siege when he suggested a new surrender plan. He would write his interpretations unlocking the seven seals, then he would come out. The FBI's on-site commander, Jeffrey Jamar, gave the plan lip service to Vernon, but later says that he saw it wholly as another delaying tactic from a man who had proven that his word could not be trusted. When on April 17th they asked Stephen Schneider for a progress update on Vernon's writings, they say they got no information to lead them to believe there had been any at all. Jeffrey Jamar told the later congressional hearing, that the FBI was increasingly concerned about the potential for mass suicide and wanted to take the lead rather than letting Vernon proceed on his schedule. On April 15th, US Treasury Deputy Secretary Robert Altman conveyed his thoughts on the FBI's gas assault push with a memo to his superior stating, quote, The risks of tragedy are there, and if the FBI waits indefinitely, Mr Koresh eventually will concede. FBI lawyer Danny Coulson told Time that it wasn't that simple. It may have seemed like the Bureau was just waiting around, but the reality was that their officers were on high alert 24-7. 
Their snipers were at high risk, knowing the weaponry inside the compound, and while they could have taken out Vernon a number of times, their rules of engagement meant that they couldn't shoot unless under direct threat. In the same article, an agent is quoted as saying, I don't know if anybody has ever spent any time staring through a scope, but I did it for 15 or 20 minutes and it was terribly disorienting. These people had been there for 50 days, end quote. It was suspected that the Davidians had stocked up enough food to last them for a year or more, and Vernon had been known to say that he would never go to jail again. Historian Robert H. Churchill, interviewed in Vox, said that the authorities were also used to taking charge of situations by aggression. Quote, the FBI was of a mentality that letting this thing drag on was making the agency look weak. Over the next couple of days, Janet Reno again denied the tear gas plan, but requested further briefings from the FBI. She had many questions about the dangers of tear gas, especially for children, and many questions about how the sect members might respond. She spoke to a toxicology specialist, and confirmed that the form of gas being considered would have no lasting health risks, including links to birth defects or carcinogens. She was also led to believe that child abuse could be taking place within Mount Carmel during the siege, information of a very dubious nature. By April 17th, she had approved the proposal, positioned as the best way to force Vernon Howell and the besieged sect members' hands and to get the children out of harm's way. She informed President Clinton of the plan, and he said he'd support her decision. Also on April 17th, Lewis Alaniz, the first non-branch Davidian who'd snuck into the compound, came out and was arrested, but also provided no useful information to authorities. On April 18th, tanks were moved forward again and damaged more branch Davidian vehicles. One of the FBI's listening devices picked up an unknown person inside the compound saying, quote, There's nothing like a good fire to bring us to the earth. It had been 26 days since the last Branch Davidian had exited the compound. The final day of the siege had arrived. At dawn on Monday the 19th of April, American authorities turned tanks on their own people. The FBI announced over loudspeakers that the standoff was over and ordered the Branch Davidians to exit the building. They also announced that the gas those inside were about to smell was non-lethal tear gas, which the FBI then proceeded to spray into the compound as they rammed the tanks into the building to create access points. Come out now and you will not be harmed, they called to those inside. When they came under gunfire again, the agents abandoned the strategic slow-release plan and let off clouds of the gas wherever they could manage to get into the building. FBI negotiator Byron Sage says that the Bureau was banking on the idea that the group would want to get their families, and especially their children, out of the building. Then the flames came. 
some blamed the incendiary nature of the tear gas for causing the fire, or at least exacerbating it. Even today, there remains a lot of contention about which party ignited the flames, but infrared footage appears to show the fire starting at three different locations and inside the compound. Plus, seven of the nine Branch Davidians who managed to exit the burning building had accelerants on their person. A later independent investigation found that the fire started from within the building. Branch Davidian Clive Doyle, who escaped the inferno, maintains that even if the Branch Davidians did start the fire, the fault is with the authorities who had no reason to have put them in that situation in the first place. Australian Branch Davidian Graham Craddock, who also got out of the building that day, told the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, At about noon I remember hearing, The building is on fire. I looked for signs of smoke and couldn't see any. A few minutes after, I could see smoke. I remember when I looked over and someone was pouring fuel on the floor, and maybe a minute or two later I heard someone call from upstairs. They said, Light the fire, end quote. It was a windy day in spring, and the building had a lot of plywood throughout, so it went up fast. The television cameras kept rolling throughout the awful spectacle. At 12.35pm, there was an explosion. It was day 51 of the siege. Ruth Riddle was inside the building and looking for a way out as the heat built up around her. She managed to get outside, only to turn around and try to run back in to be with her friends to the end, but she was dragged to safety by an agent who risked exiting the safety of his armoured vehicle to save her life. He asked her where the children were, but she wouldn't answer. A man on a rooftop waved officers away, then fell to the ground where they put out the flames on his body and dragged him away to safety. Nine people made it out alive that day, and none of them were children. After the fire, Bill Clinton released a statement from the White House that read, quote, The law enforcement agencies involved in the Waco siege recommended the course of action pursued today. I told the Attorney General to do what she thought was right, and I stand by that decision. A current affair had flown Bruce and Lisa Gent to Texas from Australia when the siege was underway, and they awaited news of their children and grandchildren. Heartbreakingly, Peter Gent had been the first to die in the initial shootout, and Nicole and her two children perished in the fire. The Branch Davidians would claim that Peter Gent was shot by the National Guard helicopters while he was on the roof of the compound, but ballistic studies in later investigations showed that he was shot by an ATF agent on the ground. The National Guard maintained that the only thing shot from the helicopters was video footage. Grace Adams' younger sister was one of the casualties. Joanne Vega, who'd come over with her parents from Hawaii to join the sect, had been one of the children released during the negotiations. She lost both of her parents in the fire. While most who perished that day died from smoke inhalation, 
21 autopsies presented during a later wrongful death suit showed 20 Branch Davidians, including several children, had died from gunshot wounds, and one toddler had been stabbed in the chest prior to the fire engulfing their bodies. No federal agents had discharged any bullets that day. Vernon Howell died of a bullet wound to the head, and it was difficult to establish with any certainty whether it was self-inflicted, or whether, as went another theory, it was shot by Stephen Schneider, who then turned the gun on himself. The wound was to the centre of Vernon's forehead, which many claim doesn't tee up with a self-directed bullet. 48 illegal assault rifles were uncovered in the aftermath of the fire, as well as live grenades and hundreds of other guns. Byron Sage told ABC News for the 10th anniversary of the incident in 2003, quote, I honestly feel that this would have ended tragically no matter what. I'm not trying to say that the FBI or ATF does nothing wrong. We're human. But I can tell you matter-of-factly and look you straight in the eye, we did nothing to try to intentionally harm, let alone kill, anybody. There should be a natural parental instinct to get your kids out of harm's way. That's what we banked on with the parents. And we were wrong. End quote. He told 48 Hours that the incident was, quote, by far the most devastating, demanding experience that I've ever gone through in 46 years in law enforcement. Byron also spoke directly to some of the former Branch Davidian children on ABC News, telling them that the FBI's greatest mistake was, quote, underestimating the control that this man exerted over your loved ones. I think that he was a con man, to cut right to the chase, and his chosen area of con was religion. The tragedy is that your loved ones did believe his message, and they were willing to die for it, end quote. The FBI's on-site commander, Jeffrey Jamar, testified at the congressional hearings in 1995, quote, The ending was going to be the same. He was going to have that ending no matter what. He was going to have that ending one way or another. Vernon and Stephen Schneider's attorneys Dick DeGuerin and Jack Zimmerman maintained that Vernon's final offer to end the siege after unlocking the seven seals would have come good, while Brian Levin from the Centre for the Study of Hate and Extremism told CNN that he believes Vernon never planned on letting his followers go. No matter which way you look at it, the incidents of 25 years ago in Waco, Texas, were an undeniable tragedy and one that might have been avoided. Following the tragedy, there were a number of inquiries and investigations. A 1993 report by the Treasury Department was damning of the conduct of Robert Rodriguez's superiors Chuck Sarabin and Philip Chojnacki. The two were fired, though later rehired at lower positions. Then there were the congressional hearings in 1995 and a $17 million independent review. As reported by the Chicago Tribune in July of 1995, Philip Chojnacki testified before Congress that, quote, I saw no reason for the raid to not go forward. And Chuck Sarabin said of Vernon, quote, I didn't feel he knew that we were coming. 
Undercover agent Robert Rodriguez was having none of it, though, and retorted, quote, Those two men know what I told them and knew exactly what I meant. The ATF and FBI have both made changes to their operations since Waco. Janet Reno said the buck stopped with her for her decision to greenlight the tear gas, and she came under intense criticism for it. She said she'd tried to make the best decision she could with the information available at the time, and that obviously in hindsight it was the wrong one. Bill Clinton refused to bow to calls for her resignation. As a result of the Treasury Department's report, the ATF's leadership was ousted and replaced, with Philip Chojnacki and Chuck Sarabin's supervisor Dan Hartnett retiring in the aftermath, though he claimed that the report contained distortions. His replacement, John McGaw, said it would be impossible for something like this to happen again due to the changes put in place. The FBI's approach to militia standoffs became settled in favour of negotiators and their tactics of patience, rather than tactical teams and their focus on pressure. This could be observed in the 1996 Montana Freeman standoff, where a group resisting their ranch's foreclosure held out for 29 days longer than the Waco siege, and eventually all came out unharmed. Eleven Branch Davidian survivors were tried in front of a San Antonio jury in 1994, with over seven weeks of testimony from 130 witnesses. Eight of them were convicted of voluntary manslaughter and weapons violations, and given sentences ranging from five to forty years. On appeal, their claims of self-defence were denied. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals noted that the ATF had lawful reason to be there and should not have been fired upon as known federal agents. The Waco Tribune-Herald's series was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, though during the siege dozens of agents had joined a lawsuit against the paper, along with KWTX television station and the ambulance company whose employee had tipped the station off. The plaintiffs claimed that the media had compromised the raid, and they wanted to send the message that journalists couldn't pursue a scoop to the point of risking people's lives. They eventually settled out of court for an undisclosed sum, which was reported to be over $15 million from the three defending parties. Surviving family members of those who perished in the fire brought a case against the US government for the wrongful death of their relatives in the amount of $675 million, but the case was dismissed in 2000. Judge Walter Smith Jr. stated that, quote, No ATF agent fired any shot nor used any force against residents of the compound and the Davidians that was indiscriminate. The ramifications of the tragedy at Waco continue to echo in America to this day. Following the terrible events, two ATF agents died by suicide, unable to deal with the horrors that they had experienced and the aftermath of the incident. The photographer who was blamed in blowing the ATF's cover to David Jones told the Austin Chronicle that the accusations ruined his life and his career. According to Lee Hancock, The authorities' decision to cover up their mistakes and silence their agents on anything related to the case for years was a big contributor to the conspiracy theories that came forth in the resulting information vacuum. With the ATF and the FBI not owning their errors from the start, the narrative of a heavy-handed government attacking a harmless, law-abiding sect gained a lot of traction. 
She also sees the television coverage of the tragedy as, quote, the addictive voyeurism that shaped today's non-stop disaster and disinfotainment news cycles. Waco followed an incident at Ruby Ridge, Idaho, which in 1992 also involved a shootout with the authorities and the deaths of innocent people when marshals attempted to apprehend Randy Weaver, who'd brought his family to a remote cabin in order to evade a court appearance for weapons charges. In the aftermath of these two incidents, with their aggressive government responses, America saw a rise in the right-wing militia movement of the 1990s. As Chip Burlett and Matthew Nemirov Lyons put in their book Right-Wing Populism in America, Too Close for Comfort, quote, The Ruby Ridge and Waco incidents served as trigger effects to galvanise a mobilisation in 1993 and 1994 around stopping the Brady Bill and gun control provisions of the Crime Control Act. Some grafted apocalyptic conspiracist fears onto the gun rights campaign, arguing that, if gun rights were restricted, a brutal and repressive government crackdown on gun owners would quickly follow. This interpretation not only existed in the Patriot Movement itself, but also was promoted by groups such as the National Rifle Association and rightist political leaders such as Pat Buchanan, end quote. This ties back to some of the discussion I had in last month's bonus episode on Om Shinrikyo with Sarah Skibtower, related to conspiracy culture. Chip Burlett and Matthew Nemirov Lyons continue, quote, The suppression of gun rights was seen by some as merely the opening act in a broader plan of tyranny, with the ultimate goal being UN control of the United States to benefit the global conspiracy of secret elites. While for many, this was a secular narrative, an apocalyptic and millennialist end-times overlay was easily added by Christian fundamentalist elements in the movement. Another overlay was anti-Jewish conspiracism. The common solution, given these narratives, was to create independent armed defensive units to resist the expected wave of government violence, thus the armed citizens' militias, end quote. Timothy McVeigh would go on to perpetrate the Oklahoma City bombing, which he carried out on the second anniversary of the Waco fire on April 19, 1995, killing 168 people, including 19 children. The army vet who had sold bumper stickers at Waco had progressed from his pro-gun, anti-government stance into a much more deadly ideology. While he may have hoped his domestic terrorism would inspire others in the militia movement, instead, of course, most were appalled by his actions. Timothy McVeigh later told the police that he and his accomplice, Terry Nichols, had considered a targeted assassination of those involved in Waco, including Janet Reno but instead went with the attack on the federal building. Vox draws an alarming line between early public support for the government's actions at Waco and a drop in support following the Oklahoma City bombings, concluding that Timothy McVeigh's aim to draw attention to and prompt criticism of the Waco incident was actually successful. Quote, It's not that people were sympathetic to McVeigh and Nichols themselves, but they managed to ignite a public debate that ended up making a lot more people sympathetic to their grievances. In a post-9-11 world, it's nearly impossible to imagine a terrorist attack that kills hundreds of Americans, causing America to look seriously at the terrorists' complaints. And this is where it's fair to start wondering if, perhaps, this would have happened if McVeigh, Nichols and the movement they represented weren't overwhelmingly white. End quote. 
Eric Rudolph would be found responsible for a number of bombings and attempted bombings by 1996, including at an abortion clinic, a lesbian nightclub, and at the Atlanta Olympics, the last of which he saw as promoting, quote, the values of global socialism. He would use the code 41993 with police to verify that correspondence was really from him and not a copycat, a code clearly chosen to align himself with the Waco fire. Vernon Howell is survived by four of his biological children, one born before he joined the Branch Davidians, and three with mothers who left the sect before the events of 1993. His own mother, Bonnie, who had told media that she was heartbroken at the loss of her son, daughter-in-law and grandchildren, was stabbed to death in 2009 at the age of 64. Her sister Beverly Clark was charged with her murder. Their niece told the Athens Daily Review that Beverly had suffered from mental health issues for years, and that Bonnie had been long involved in caring for her. She felt that Bonnie should be remembered for the kind woman that she was, rather than for the actions of her son. There are some people who believe in Vernon Howell slash David Koresh as a prophet, to this day. Clive Doyle, who lost his 18-year-old daughter, Shari, in the fire, told NPR's Weekend Edition in 2013, quote, We survivors of 1993 are looking for David and all those that died either in the shootout or in the fire. We believe that God will resurrect this special group. Paul Fatter, who spent 13 years in jail for his part, told the same program, quote, I would like to see some divine intervention, for God to vindicate his people, all those that have suffered over the years for truth, who've been misunderstood, have been mocked, ridiculed and thrown in prison. Sheila Martin, who lost her husband Wayne and four of their children, exited the compound during the siege and survives with two children. The couple's seventh child died from unrelated causes. She too awaits the resurrection of Vernon and her lost family members. Siege survivor Graham Craddock, who served his 13 years in a Louisiana jail before being deported back to Australia, told the Sydney Morning Herald for the 20th anniversary of the incident, quote, What he told us was going to happen, happened, all except for the last part, which was that he was going to come back some day. Is he going to come back? The fact that it hasn't happened yet doesn't prove anything. I haven't given up hope. Let's wait and see. So much went wrong in Waco, Texas, 25 years ago, and nobody came out looking particularly good. While there's plenty to be learned on all sides, there are also an awful lot of grey areas. I think it can be useful to remember that nothing is ever completely black and white. Clive Doyle was interviewed for the New York Times video documentary series Retro Report in July 2015 and said, quote, People verbalise, you know, their anger at the government or at law enforcement or at the system or whatever they want to call it. Now everything's likened to us. Is this going to be another Waco? I appreciate their support and their sympathy, but you listen to what they're saying and some of them scare me. End quote. 
As noted in the New York Times, a 2014 report by the Southern Poverty Law Center concludes that, two decades after the Waco debacle, federal officials continue to struggle with their approach to radical right extremists. What they learned from Waco was that a heavy-handed approach risks a major loss of life. Yet allowing the anti-government movement to flout the law at gunpoint is surely not the answer. Today I'll leave the final word with ex-Branch Davidian Grace Adams, who told a current affair earlier this year, quote, I blame Koresh because he didn't bring the people out. They were not going to come out unless he gave the OK. The FBI... I think it was badly handled by them. I think it could have been done another way. This eighth episode is the final episode of the very first season of Let's Talk About Sects. I want to take a moment to thank all of my interviewees, voice actors, the many journalists and academics whose work has helped form my understanding of various groups, our amazing Patreon supporters, and also you, our listeners. It's been amazing to see the podcast so well received, and the download numbers have surpassed all of my expectations, considering I make this thing mostly on a laptop in my bedroom. I'm not exactly taking a break, as I'm working hard on the next season already, with some fascinating subjects soon to come, and one in particular that I've been working on for over a year now, which is almost entirely original research. So be sure to stay subscribed, and you'll be notified when season two starts rolling out later this year. I can't wait. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the podcast, please mention it to friends or family who you think may be interested, or share an episode on social media. Personal recommendations go a long way. You can also support the podcast's creation with a small monthly donation at patreon.com slash ltaspod. Honestly, every little bit helps keep the project going. If you miss my voice in your ear, you can also catch me guest narrating a couple of stories on the Let's Not Meet podcast, a true horror podcast that recounts the creepy encounters that people submit to the subreddit of the same name. In other exciting news, Let's Talk About Sects has been named a finalist in the Australian Podcast Awards for the storytelling category, so I'll be heading down to Melbourne with my fingers crossed for the awards ceremony in May but I'm mostly looking forward to meeting some of the other incredible Australian podcast creators who've been nominated as well. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association, via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention at www.iasp.info. 
Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. All information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me again next season. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.